I think nonprofit positioning is, is an extraordinarily difficult challenge and I can certainly speak to it. What's up branding experts Arik here at eBay Design and in this episode I interview James Heaton to learn more about the process of positioning a non-profit startup. The problem with uh, and, and there are a number of challenges facing a nonprofit that um, are that make the, the work of nonprofits and nonprofit branding actually more difficult than for-profit branding. Um, and one of those is that nonprofits tend to uh, have to sort of chase grants. So they have to be funded. Uh, there is no kind of typically intrinsic revenue source. So they're looking for outside sources of revenue um, in order to support their programs. And those, those outside sources have uh, criteria and objectives that it's natural for the nonprofit to, to sort of, in an almost chameleon-like way, sort of slot themselves or recast themselves into uh, what that uh, that grant partner is looking for in a grantee. Uh, and so it's very difficult for a nonprofit to hold a simple, e easily understood position because they kind of have to adapt themselves to the available funding. And this can happen uh, over time or in a you know, just because the, there's three different types of funding sources, maybe one from the Gates Foundation and another source, and the Gates Foundation needs a certain thing, and this other funder needs a different thing. And so they, the, the drive to uh, tailor their offer, which is a natural, it's a natural sales activity, right? And in sales, you, you sort of highlight those things those features and attributes or those benefits that are relevant to the needs of that particular entity that's being sold to at that moment. But that's antithetical to what a brand needs to do. Um, so, so often uh, nonprofits, not unlike businesses, are sales driven and the habits of sales uh, don't meet the demands of marketing. Um, and I'm putting brand within marketing now, but in, in a marketing context, your communication has to be uh, sort of exactly right for the target. It can't be modulated. There's no opportunity to adjust the pitch uh, based on what you find out in a conversation and as you can in a sales conversation. So, so this, sort of choosing what we are going to be and building our, our brand, including the operational and behavioral aspects of our brand around our capacity to effectively deliver that is extraordinarily difficult for a nonprofit. It's difficult enough for a for-profit, which also has to go through the same rigors of consistency between how they're operationally optimized and how they're uh, presenting themselves so that whatever brand promise they make is true in my experience interacting with that brand. So, but you can see how that becomes really difficult um, 
as a as a nonprofit that does not have the rigorous feedback mechanism of the market and revenue, giving them input as to exactly what's working and what's not. Um, they also tend to have a lot of passionate people in the organization who come to it um, because they care deeply about whatever it is that that is sort of their driver. And so it turns out that there's a great deal of conflict in within nonprofit organizations. So they actually have the highest level of internal conflict of any organizational type in North America. Um, what types of conflict is this? Can interpersonal conflict, decision-making conflict, um, uh, conflict of all kinds. Uh, so you would imagine that, you know, life within a nonprofit would be this kind of wonderful thing where everyone's passionate about what they do and care deeply about the cause and their capacity to have an impact out in the world, when in fact that's m more typically a highly fraught environment. Um, and so questions relating to brand are also, therefore, um, highly conflicted. Uh, there are diffuse decision-making hierarchies. It's not like there's the CEO and that that CEO's word is the word, the final word on this decision. Um, the, you know, the executive director or the CEO is answerable to a board and the board come to this, you know, part-time. It's not really their uh, full focus and attention. Uh, they're usually very accomplished people in other realms and they, they uh, therefore could have very sort of strong opinions. So there's a, a very difficult sort of l landscape of conflict out of which we still have to pull a brand that will, in order for it to be good, has to make some very hard choices. Yeah. Uh, and so, so do you have like a framework that be, I, I assume that you yes. come in and you align all the uh, stakeholders so everyone has something to say and, uh, and, and you try to, you know, solve that internal conflict and that's right. I have everyone to, yes. on one, on, on the same page. So everyone can, you know, contribute to, uh, building this brand and, and designing this experience and, and designing for, for the brand. And right. Uh, so, so typically, yes. So typically branding, companies have this uh, sort of the default methodology is to interview all the stakeholders, give them all a voice and somehow kind of bring that together into something and then present that sort of consolidated version of that back to them. And I found that that is extraordinarily inefficient. And um, in looking at projects where we've inherited a disaster from a previous agency, it's sometimes ineffective. Um, so we've, instead uh, sort of staked our claim to a process where we bring all of the conflicted parties, every stakeholder who has the capacity to uh, disrupt, facilitate, uh, enhance, or torpedo the project, put them all in one room and hash out the core questions um, live so that all of those issues, whatever they are, however, deeper serious get exposed and in the exposure of them the realization that okay well this isn't going to work like 
so you, you, you combine that, oh, oh my God, we can't even answer the question, what is this organization? We can't even agree to the answer to that question. How are we going to present a unified front out into the world? So there's an, so this sort of internal reckoning has to happen uh, in order for the organization to acquire the discipline that will be required for them to have an effective brand. And that's why you see so many messy, ineffective nonprofit brands, because that work isn't forced. And it's not forced through because it's difficult and uncomfortable. And so, so we end up, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the opposite of what you want to do. You want to promise unicorns and rainbows, but we actually promise that it's going to be hard. And if you're not going to go through the hard work, you're not going to get to the promised land at the other side because there is no easy way to do that. Uh, That's understandable. So can you talk more about how, how you do that? So I assume that you have, ever, so you already said that everyone is there. Yeah, I want, I, want, I want all of the key stakeholders. I want a room with at least 15 people, possibly 25. Um, uh-huh. And I want the, the guy who hates everything. And I want the, um, you know, all of the power centers to be there at the table because they represent the brain trust of that organization. And I want all of their input and insight. And I want any decision that's going to be made to have been thoroughly challenged now in this room today, rather than three weeks from now after a ton of work has been done. I want those issues to be brought out into the open and then us to sort of hash it out and come to a decision. It's not necessarily a consensus, but a, a well thought through decision that people can then commit to, even if they don't 100% agree to it, they can see how it was hashed out and they were there at the hashing moment. That I think is the, for me, has been, has proven the most effective way to push this kind of a process forward. Because burnt decisions are hard. Uh, it, because it, like all strategic decisions, they inevitably involve a great deal of abandonment of those things that are not decided upon, of those courses that will not be taken. Yeah, uh, people have different personalities and, and, and different goals, and sometimes it's hard to, you know, <coughs> bring, uh, like, align, align them all uh, <coughs> when it comes to question about, you know, what we do in terms of, in terms of the brand, right? Because everyone they have different... Bit- Right. People have, well, even people have different understandings of what a brand is and what it's supposed to do and whether it's important at all. Um, There's a really great uh, research uh, sort of uh, that was done in 2017 called Intangible Asset Market Value Study of Fortune uh, of like the S&P 500 companies. And it illustrates that um, company value uh, has totally flipped from when in 1975, if you looked at the S&P 500, 83% of all company value was tangible assets. uh, And only 17% of their value were intangible assets, including brand. Um, And that has absolutely flipped. In 2015, it's 
16% of the market value of S&P 500 companies is their tangible assets, is rooted in their tangible assets, and 84% are the intangibles, including brand. So the role and importance in just in valuation, if you take a fully 100% sort of commercial vantage or perspective on this, is extraordinary. And so first I have to get everyone to the table in the understanding of what a brand is and what power it has to facilitate that organization's capacity to deliver on its mission. And once they understand how that really matters, then we have to do the work of sorting out, okay, if that's the case, then we've got to be serious about trimming down how we're going to talk about ourselves and focusing on those things that are most salient, um, that are also true in terms of, the, of what, what value we can bring to the world. And that's, so that's this, this is really interesting. So how do you explain the importance of you know, branding and how to build a brand and how to design for a brand? Uh, is there is this is like a, you you give uh, some kind of uh, I have a number of kind of mental experiments that I run them through, um, and so I, I I do essentially a component of the workshop is always helping everyone to understand what a brand is and why it's important. So that's uh, the first thing that you do. Yes, when you come into the room with those key stake, uh, stakeholders, you explain what are you going to do and why you are doing this and why is it important, right? It's the second thing I do. The first thing I do is I draw out what their goals are. And, um, and if necessary, I, um, I do, I, I, I grab their attention with, um, some kind of, um, I don't know what you'd call it, but humanizing activity that puts me in the room, not as a kind of know-it-all expert outsider, but as a human being that is fallible and that I depend on them for a successful outcome for the work that we're about to embark on. Yeah, and so, 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 so that I have to facilitate their capacity to get to the place that I don't know what, you know, they, and it's interesting at the end, they said, well, you knew where we were going with that. And I said, no, I did not. This was all you. I am simply facilitating your, I'm giving you the framework through which you can, you and this, you, the collective you in this room, this group of people that we have assembled, uh, because half the pa half the battle is getting the right people in the room. Um, I'm simply there to put you through a rigorous framework so that you can answer these questions for yourselves. And other than that, there's no good way to do it. I can't give you these answers. Uh, yeah. You've got to come up with them. You so, cannot influence that. They are the expert, right? They, they, that's right. They know. I'm never going to know more about their work than they know about their work. Exactly. So you're just there to hold the space and align everyone so everyone can, you know, uh, contribute and then extract the answers from them by using your framework, what your, your proven framework that that's right. in the past. So. That's right. 
So they're so they're essentially buying the framework that and my facilitation of that, um, and and I'm and and the bulk of the work in is in is is from them. Uh, so so I'm essentially facilitating their capacity to function as a team and solve the problems that we will identify that they need to solve. Um, so yeah, so that's so the first thing I do is set up the the essentially the the facilitation method, and then we set goals, and the goals kind of put them in the mindset of the future and what they need to do and be that's different from where they are today, and then I help them understand what a brand is and how it needs to perform and what is required in order for it to perform. And then in the context of that, we begin to answer their particular questions, like what is this organization and how can we explain it in a way that anyone would get it and be curious to know more. Um, and, and when they can't do that, then they realize how much work they have to do. Um, so, so that brings everyone to the table, including the skeptics who didn't want to be there in the first place. And then we have a productive you know, three hours or two days, depending on the nature of the nature and size of the organization. And if, and one of the, to go back to your original point about startups and, and smaller organizations, it's actually harder to do this with them because they don't have the diversity of uh, perspective that I can get in a room with a large organization. Like I can get 15 people who have 15 different very different perspectives on how an organization functions and what its brand should be. And that diversity of perspective, if you can pull out from that a distilled answer to key questions is really robust. But if I've only got the two founding partners, you know, this stuff has been rattling around in their head in the same way, you know, with the same rotation cycle for six months or, or six years. And it's really hard to get something else out of that. Uh, so in the case of a smaller company or, or, or startup, I really want their clients, I want their advisors, I want their spouses, I want uh, 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 other perspectives um, beyond those of the founders. Uh, so I insist that they at least put five people into that room because if we can't have at least five people, we're not going to have enough diversity of perspective to get to robust answers. I see. Uh, that's understandable. Okay, so at least five people. If there are two founders, two two co-founders, uh, they need to bring someone else. They need to bring their business. Their you know their their business coach. Their uh, a, a spouse, a, cl a close friend, or a, a customer—you uh, know, someone who has intimate, sort of personal experience with the pro with the product—and um, the more, the better. If, if even if there's only two people, if they can get twelve people in that room, that will be a more productive session. Um, I, you know, extracting the vision from the founder um, doesn't help with this, uh, especially as is the case, I think, with 98% of all businesses, the founder uh, is not an exact replica of the customer. 
So you have this um, sort of freshman marketing mistake of confusing the decision maker for the customer um, that happens all the time. And it happens in nonprofit and for-profit contexts. Um, so by having the real customer or having other people in that room, you can dislodge this, uh, the fantasy of the most powerful person in the room thinking that they are the customer. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so, so you ask those questions and, and then you extract the answers from them. And then based on that, um, uh, how do you like, how do you, um, uh, uh, make some insights out of, of those answers by writing it down. <laughs> so, so, so part of this is, you know, the answers are deceptively simple, but you, but they have to be good, simple answers. This is the simplicity on the far side of complexity. You've got to go through all this stuff to get to a simple answer that makes sense. And then you have to write that down and, you, and commit to it. And the, the building of confidence around those simple answers and the writing it down and committing to it, the larger the organization, the longer that takes. And in my experience, that has taken as much as a year and a half for an organization to come to terms with the things that we figured out in the first three hours. And they send it out for research. They uh, you know, we've had to run uh, research confirmation on five continents for an organization that just couldn't believe that we'd answered the question in that first session. Um, and they wanted to know that the answer was going to work, that it was actually going to do the job. And it turned out that it was, ver it was verified and validated. And, and, you know, lo and behold, sort of nine months later, they're able to sort of roll it out. But that... Um, sometimes, sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes it does take nine months of difficult um, effort to finally boil down to the simplest answer to the question that has relevance and salience outside among the population of customers as well. Uh, so that it's not just some navel-gazing exercise. So, so, there, so there's a legitimate role for sort of market validation of any idea, but the, the, the step one is to get down an agreed-to hypothesis, a robust and agreed-to hypothesis that's worked out internally so that, um, so that when, when we come back with the market insight, uh, we're adjusting that hypothesis that has been previously agreed to. And it's, it's an amendment that they're, you know, that they're making to, to their own previous work. And it's not just, you know, me bringing in these market insights and, you know, you have to listen to this um, kind of, uh, which doesn't really work. Like pe people, like, you know, I can't pull the expert card and convince them to do anything that they'll actually, you know, do. I think people have to kind of build to the realization that they need to do it, and they have to come to that realization largely on their own, reconcile the implications with their organizational operations, and then carry it out. 
So if, if it's driven by the marketing department and, oh, you need to do this, you know, they might superficially do it, but if they're not doing it deep down in the organization, then at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of hooey. Yeah. You give us some examples so we can like, you know, uh, envision uh, like a specific uh, example of um, what well, that okay. might be. Right. I mean, there's a gr there are great examples out in the world, like, um, you know, British Petroleum, when Landor rebranded it, uh, they came up with this absolutely glorious um, blue, you know, BP, and they opened the campaign about Beyond Petroleum and this whole idea of the green future and how this company was an innovator in, toward sort of a, a new sort of green vision of the world with this yellow and green sort of sun splash, like absolutely enticing visual brand that deeper down had very little connection with the company at that time, which was simply a big oil company. And the, um, you know, the, the horizon disaster in the Gulf of Mexico kind of exposed this fundamental disconnect between this stunningly beautiful brand that was created by a, a, an excellent branding company that had no connection to the operational practices and behavior of that organization. And that, uh, so that temporarily propelled them into the sort of the leading brand position and then when it was exposed to be a lie, they dropped to like fifth place and have been struggling ever since in terms of their sort of brand prestige. Uh, so, so, I mean, that's a big example, but it's exactly what I'm talking about. And if you go to the nonprofit area, you can't be untrue to yourself in any way because that will be exposed and the exposure of that in inauthenticity can kill you. I would argue that that's true for all businesses and all brands of all kinds um, because the we're now in a we're not in a we're not in the, the age of marketing that characterized the 20th century is being replaced by an age of information and in an age of information the truth matters yes. so the truth of your brand matters and whatever you espouse out in the world needs to be backed up by your operational and organizational behavior, or it can be or will be exposed as as false. Yeah. You know, as if you make false statements, people will find out eventually. Yeah. Uh, they will find out. You know, we have this. We are living in this area. You know, everyone can um, uh, comment on on social media, and um, so you will be exposed. So you have to be honest. You have to be right. And and as a and as, as a brand, I would describe that as extraordinarily risky behavior. So, so you've got to work out something that you can say about yourself and some pre presentation of how you bring value to the world that is true, that is fundamentally not a, 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 a fabrication, an invention of a, uh, you know, an invention from the marketing department. That doesn't, for me, that doesn't work. Um, so we, we have to find some true expression. It doesn't have to be everything and it actually can't be everything like you can't your brand can't absolutely represent all the complexity of, 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 of an organization but it needs to choose something that is fundamentally and in its essence true okay so so you identify what is true to you to your organization 
and then you double down on that and and then you stick to it and how about um well, um, you, so you, you identify something that's true to your organization that actually makes sense to your customer, right? So you can have something that's true but meaningless outside of the organization. So there is the there has to be the connection to uh, to to relevance or meaning beyond the walls of the institution. Um, so that's the intersection, the necessary intersection with the customer that also has to be worked out. So what is true that is also meaningful that if we talk about it, it will help propel a greater sense of affinity, loyalty, and positivity toward us as an organization and, if, and therefore donor support, attendance, um, you know, purchase of our stock, whatever the, whatever the, or our, of our, of our, or of our products, uh, you know, whatever the output into the world that particular entity provides. I see. Uh, so it must be true to you, to your brand, and also resonate your customer, with customers. To, right, to your customers. So you have to know, you have to decide who your most important customer is and how and then you have to connect the dots between what their needs are and your brand offer. And how about competitors? Do you do, you do competitive analysis or you just ask questions and, and you get those answers from... from competitors, competitors exist in the mind of the customer, right? So yeah. competitive insight, in our view, must come from the perspective of the customer. Who our, comp who our competitors are, who is competing for our hearts and minds or our, our time and dollars, that is something that is determined uh, by the outside and not actually by us. The people that we as inside the organization might see as our competitors uh, because of our deep institutional knowledge of ourselves and of them may not actually be the most important competitors in the mind of the customer. So. So our view of competitive research uh, is tightly tied to customer insight. I see. Uh, so then you, it's all, you identify your uniqueness, your, something that is true to you. You mm -hmm. focus on your comp competitors. You try to connect with them, find something meaningful that uh, is going to resonate with them. Right. And well, also, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other thing about competitors is that it's not a static world, right? Everything is in motion. Um, so, you know, unless you have absolute sort of like, you know, laser vision to see through what through to the competitors' plans for their own position adjustments or whatever they are doing to, to evolve into the current competitive landscape, um, you know, you, you, it's very difficult to anticipate where they're going. Um, so I think the more reliable uh, source of insight, again, is the customer. Uh, you know, unless you're sitting in on the boardroom at your competitor's uh, strategic session, you don't know where they're headed and it's going to be very difficult to predict um, and you know that 
has a lot of consequences. Um, I think we all naturally suffer from a sort of mistaken impression that the world is more static than it actually is. Um, so that's hard work also. The competitive analysis is no easy matter because at one level, deciding who your competitors actually are, um, it, it's not automatically a given. You've got to figure that out. Where is the competitive landscape where we're going to operate? Who are the competitors there? And then what do we need to do in order to uh, kind of win in our customers' minds given that particular landscape? Yes, and you, and you need to look into the future because they are going to... They look into the future too. Right, everybody's yeah. looking. <laughs> yeah, and you're going to launch this brand you know, in, in, in a few months or in, in a year or something. That's right. And right. so they, they, yeah, they, they may also, you know, adjust and change uh, a little bit. So you need to like uh, try to anticipate at least um, to see, you know, what they are going to do and how your positioning strategy is going to, you know, work. So once we have, uh, once we develop a, a positioning idea, uh, then uh, I assume you do some kind of a test. Yes. Is that correct? How do you test the, the efficacy of, of this positioning strategy? There is more, more than one way to skin a cat. It depends, again, on who the customer is, whether they're a, a B2B, essentially, or a consumer target. Um, and I have, I have a very dubious view of focus groups um, because... People, when they're asked to explain themselves, explain why they choose something that the act of being asked to explain it makes you stupid. And so you will say things that are absolutely disconnected to your true behavior or your likely behavior. Um, so you can get a false positive very easily. Um, so research methodology is, is actually a critical challenge in any new idea um, or inobvious idea because there are things that people cannot say about their behavior. In other words, your ability to self-analyze why you do anything is extraordinarily limited. So by asking you to self-analyze, you're going to get a bunch of stuff that's essentially made up. The other thing that research always struggles with is, well, maybe I don't want to say what my true motivations are because they're embarrassing to me or because right. they don't yeah. fit my image of myself. Like, that's not the yeah. person I want to be. So I'm not going to tell you about that person. I'm going to tell you about this other idealized person that what does not reflect what my behavior is ultimately going to be. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I agree. So how, so how to so like, uh, how to go about that? So those are trade secrets. <laughs> so getting past this can't say, won't say dilemma is one of the crucial um, elements of, um, of effective research. And we use uh, some pretty well-developed qualitative methods that we've found effective at getting past the won't say in particular and sometimes the can't say dilemma that plagues research. Um, that 
that's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> um, but I realize you also have a time limit on this. Uh, yeah. Is that enough for now? Yes, yes, that's, that's great. That was awesome. Thank you for all the insights and, you know, walking us through uh, your framework so we can have some understanding. I hope it was helpful for our, our audience. And thank you for, for being uh, on my podcast and taking time to do this. Great. I hope that was all right. Uh, and, and, and people who want to like um, learn more about what you do, can you give us uh, look, uh, how to contact you, how to find more about you and your company and what you do? Sure. Again, uh, I'd, actually, I never said that, but my name is James Heaton, and the company is uh, Tronvig. And we can be found at Tronvig, that's T-R-O-N-G, uh, V, wait, oh wait, did I spell my name wrong? Yes, T-R-O-N-V-I-G, G-R-O-U-P, so tronviggroup.com. Yeah. Tronviggroup.com. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Have a great Thanks. one. So this is it for today's episode and make sure to go and check out the James's website and follow him on social media. And you can find all the links on this episode's page at ebekdesign.com forward slash podcast forward slash two. So thanks for tuning in. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to my podcast for more tips on branding, strategy and design. This was Arek Dvorniczak from ebekdesign.com.